We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Tonight, our topic is AI, or artificial intelligence. And at its core, AI is a branch of computer science that endeavors to replicate or at least simulate in some way human intelligence in machines. That's at least what its goal is. But do machines ever really possess true understanding? The idea of trying to manufacture intelligence artificially seems impossible. In fact, it seems to be not really intelligence at all, but sort of like a pseudo or imitation of intelligence or some sort of illusion of human intelligence. AI, like computer science in general, sees patterns. AI seems a long way away from a computer personality, if you will, like comedic pairs R2D2 or C-3PO, remember them, or an evil genius like the AI character Hal from Space Odyssey. It seems that AI in reality is far from the AI depicted in science fiction books and movies. There's no rational soul in AI. AI is not even a ghost or a spirit in a machine. Alexa can give you the dictionary definition of justice, liberty, or any other abstract noun, but does Alexa really and truly understand these eternal transcendent realities? The present systems making claims to artificial intelligence aren't sentient, self-aware, volitional, or even surprising. They're just hardware and software. And yet there are concerns with artificial intelligence. Elon Musk, for example, we all know him. He is warned that humans risk being overtaken by artificial intelligence within the next five years. The billionaire engineer, founder of Tesla, and of course SpaceX companies, has consistently warned of what he called the existential threat, not Trump, no, but AI, existential threat posed by artificial intelligence in recent years. Musk writes the following, quote, we're headed toward a situation where AI is vastly smarter than humans. And I think that time, the time frame is less than five years from now. But that doesn't mean that everything collapses in five years. It just means that things get unstable and weird, unquote. But Mr. Musk's answer to such a threat is for us to embrace a certain transhumanism in terms of our ideology, to further evolve as a species to a human cyborg level, a Steve Austin-like bionic man. 
In fact, Mr. Musk has announced a new brain computer <laughs> interface startup that is attempting to implant brain chips using a sewing machine-like device. Neuralink, it is called, will allow humans to compete with AI, according to Mr. Musk, as well as help cure brain diseases and bring about other advances in technology. So here it is, machines becoming like human beings is sort of contrasted with men, at least in Musk's mind, becoming like machines. As for the church's reaction to end this introduction, Pope Francis is also a bit concerned, addressing a famous or infamous meeting of elites at Davos, Switzerland. The Pope stated, quote, artificial intelligence, robotics, and other technological innovations must be so employed that they contribute to the service of humanity and to the protection of our common home rather than to the contrary, as some assessments unfortunately foresee, unquote, the words of Pope Francis. A cardinal of the church weighed in on the matter, asking whether or not the phrase artificial intelligence is a contradiction. And he criticized AI scientists' use of the term electronic person. Church is also concerned about many moral questions in connection with AI. Technology is something that can be viewed through a moral lens, which we could label as machine ethics, which could apply to AI. For example, an area of concern is Catholic social teaching and theological understandings of work. The self-driving truck or car is just one emerging technology that could cost people jobs. Labor itself is seen as an important part of human dignity. To work was a command given to Adam in the garden before the fall. Work is good for man. It's not just about being concerned if people are starving or going without shelter. We should also be concerned about the difficulty posed by AI. Do people have the ability to work for a living, meaningfully work for a living, to engage in producing things? We have a guest this evening to help us understand this interesting topic, a good friend and parishioner of our church, namely Iris Ford. And Iris, if you could maybe introduce yourself just a little bit and your educational background and maybe what brought about your interest in this topic of artificial intelligence. <clears throat> Um, first of all, thank you for that wonderful introduction to the topic. I think you really identified a lot of the issues that we face with it and why it's interesting. So some of you may know I am a professor of philosophy. I teach at Mount St. Joseph University. Um, my dissertation was actually in aesthetics and the philosophy of art, but I have a wide range of interest in philosophy. And I am really fascinated by AI because I think that we interact with it constantly without realizing it. And we give over a lot of information to it without realizing it. And Father identified some of the really pressing concerns that we need to deal with soon in terms of ethics. As Elon Musk said, it's something we kind of need to figure out quickly. So we should, be, we should be thinking about it actively at this point. And tonight I was gonna to talk to you about a philosophical approach to it. So, um, I would like to screen share with you. And just so you know, I'm wearing green for St. Patrick's Day. Happy St. Patrick's Day. 
Yes, very good. But I'm in front of a green screen. So if I disappear, that is why. It's not because the cyborgs have got me. Um, but I'm going to talk to you about a, a few things tonight. So I'm going to pull up some slides to give you some visuals because I think it'll help make this a little more understandable. If you have any trouble seeing this, let me know. We can see it pretty good, I think, yes. Okay. Uh, actually, let me, let me do one thing before we start. Um, I happen to know that I might need to change the aspect ratio on my display to make it better for, for all of you. So let me adjust that. Okay, that should make it a little more, a little easier to see. Okay, so in, for the outline, just so you have a, an expectation of what we're going to talk about tonight, I'm going to begin with an introduction, some definitions. Father gave you a really good overview of some of the basic definitions of AI. I'm going to talk to you about some of the historical foundations of artificial intelligence because I think it'll help you understand why the philosophy developed the way that it did. Then I'm going to move into a discussion of philosophical challenges. The Turing test is actually an argument in favor of AI, suggesting that AI will reach that robust kind of intelligence that Pope Francis was worried about um, and objecting to. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about the ethical problems that are arising. And really, that'll just kind of be open for Q&A. And feel free to ask any questions as we go along. So we began the discussion with a definition of artificial intelligence, but I wanted to uh, split that into two different types. So we have weak AI, which is the view that computers can simulate intelligence. That would be using computers to model the mind in order to test or inspire psychological theories. This would be kind of more AI as a tool, a glorified calculator, a way to improve thought, kind of like what Elon Musk was talking about. <clears throat> Strong AI is the more disturbing sci-fi hypothesis that an appropriately programmed computer would literally have a mind. And that's what I'm going to focus on a little bit, because that's the more concerning aspect of AI. And is this really possible? So that's something I want to talk about tonight. Now, something a lot of people don't realize is this is not a new concept. I think a lot of people believe that we only started talking about or reading about AI in the last 100 years, and even that would be generous. But interestingly, the first use of the word Android, um, which is typoed there, forgive me for that, Android meaning like a robotic man, in English was actually in an encyclopedia entry about St. Albert the Great in 1727. And you might be thinking, why? Why is that the case? So there's an, an anecdote. Um, some of you may have heard this before, some of you may have not. There's this long-standing legend that suggests that St. Albert engineered a robotic head, which could say the word salve, but was destroyed by his student, St. Thomas Aquinas. I've labeled three different sources there for you, but in Q&A, if you want to know more about the uh, paper trail on this, I'm happy to talk about it. So some of those sources say St. Thomas destroyed the robot because he thought it was an abomination. That's one, one view. 
Another suggests that he destroyed it in surprise. And if you happened upon something like the monk bot I have depicted there, which is a 16th century clockwork robot, you might destroy it out of shock as well. And another source says St. Thomas destroyed the talking head because it was annoying, that it wouldn't stop chatting. And if your children have any kind of robotic toys that talk, you may have been tempted to do the same. So this is an interesting anecdote um, that highlights some of the interesting thing about artificial humanity, artificial intelligence. It's not a new concept. It's been around for centuries, the idea that this would be possible. So I want to jump ahead now, though, to when it first really became a true possibility. The, the, uh, the idea that we could actually create or simulate a human intelligence. And that requires us to jump ahead to World War II with the code-breaking group in Bletchley Park, <clears throat> led by Alan Turing. Some of you may have heard of Alan Turing before. He's going to be a bit of a focus for us tonight because he was an early advocate of that strong AI view. He worked with the British and U.S. intelligence agencies to develop a computer that could crack Nazi codes specifically the Enigma machine, which I'm sure a lot of you have heard of, that particular code. And the Allies would not have been able to crack that were it not for the work done by these computer scientists. It led to major advancements in computer technology, and that's gonna be important for us in a moment here. It was based on this experience that Turing wrote a landmark AI paper called Computing Machinery and Intelligence in 1950. So just a few years after this work. Um, I wanted to make a side note here though. Um, this was actually all based on the work of a Polish code breaker named Marian Rajewski and his machine called the bomb. And that's what you see depicted underneath Turing there. It was a mechanical computer. And Rajewski had actually backwards engineered this from the Enigma machine. So in order to crack the code, but eventually it was taken from Poland to Britain because of the Nazi invasion. And it was this computer that became the basis of the modern computing. If I could just, uh, in, sure. so when you said like weak versus strong, so mm -hmm. this machine that helped break the code, that's, yes. that's a good tool. That's like a weak example. Of yeah. Yes, that would be a good example of that more weak AI. It's stimulating intelligence. And I'm, I'm glad you asked that because you can see in this image here of the first true programmable electronic computer was actually made by British code breaker Tommy Flowers based on that earlier model. And you can see that there are technicians who are feeding tape into the machine. And that's programmable punch card tape. And anyone who dealt with computers like in the 60s and 70s knows what that looks like. And you mentioned weak AI. Yes, this is a perfect example of that because it was like having thousands of code breakers working. You know, they never sleep. All it does is try to crack Nazi codes. So it drastically speeds up your ability to crack those codes. So this would be simulating human intelligence. That's kind of in the vein what Elon Musk was talking about, how it could replace people. Well, this is a way that it can. It, it's like having many thousands of people working on the same problem. 
And this inspired Turing to write his famous paper. But of course, working with Colossus sent Turing toward that strong AI view. So working with Colossus made him think it was possible that we could do more. And just as another side note, oftentimes Turing is regarded as kind of the father of modern computing, but really there were so many other people involved in that, especially the early Polish computer scientists. So that brings us to the more philosophical question. That's a little of our historical background, but now we'll be moving on to a more philosophical question. Turing developed something called the Turing test based on his experience with Colossus and it was designed by Alan Turing and published in that paper that I mentioned, Computing Machinery and Intelligence in 1950. In the paper, Turing changed the question from can a machine think to can a machine pass the Turing test? Now, why did he do this? Well, at the time he was saying things like Colossus is like a person, it can think, look, it cracks codes. And then other people were saying it can't think. It's not creative. It doesn't do anything except crack code. So Turing thought that was kind of unfair because he thought any test that asked, can a machine think, was automatically going to be a no. So instead he developed the Turing test and the Turing test supposedly avoids the difficulty of defining exactly what it is to think. So if we said, in order to think like, I could ask you a question, I could ask you right now, what does it mean for a human to think? And you could give me a list of things that that includes, um, and a machine probably wouldn't have that. So Turing didn't wanna do that. Instead, he wanted to develop a test that would figure it out for us. And I'm gonna describe the test for you and we'll see if there's anything that can actually pass this test. So the Turing test itself is a test of a machine's ability to exhibit, so it's important that it's exhibiting it externally, behavior equivalent to or indistinguishable from that of a human being. Turing argues that if a machine can pass this test, in other words, fool a human interrogator into thinking it was a person, then the machine must have the mental properties of a person, strong AI that really strong, robust idea that a computer intelligence, an artificial intelligence is an intelligence in its own right. Um, and that is that sci-fi concept mm -hmm. that it goes beyond a calculator. It becomes a supposedly thinking thing in its own right. So how does this test work? It's sometimes called the imitation by imitation game, by the way. If you've ever heard that phrase, it's referring to a Turing test. I'm gonna give you a visual to explain this. So in the Turing test, you need a judge and that would be the person sitting at the main terminal there. And you need some players. Some will be real humans and one, or maybe a few will be AIs. Now this is done through text because as you can see in this image, it might not be fair to the computer if it was done in person, you know, it might give it away a little bit. <laughs> yes. um, but Turing had a bunch of variations of the test, like you would have a man and a woman and a computer or just mix it up to make it harder for the interrogator. And then the interrogator would ask questions to try to determine if 
he was talking to a human or talking to an AI. And Turing said that if a machine could fool 30% of the judges it faces into thinking it was human, then we should think that it's thinking. And it's kind of an arbitrary number on his part. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But he, he actually thought that by the year 2000, there'd be machines passing this test. So something that I ask my students sometimes is what kind of question would you ask an AI? Like, let's say you were the judge. You're the guy sitting there at that terminal. What kind of questions would you ask to try to figure out if you're talking to a human or a machine? What kinds of things would come to mind? And for my students, they often come up with the, the question, how are you feeling? which makes a lot of sense because you would think that it's not, it doesn't have emotions. It couldn't answer that question. Oh, and uh, Ed Miller just said feelings to the chat and said, yeah, it's a great question, but there's a problem with that. And let me see if I can demonstrate this. I don't know if you'll be able to hear this. I have an iPhone right here. I'm going to ask Siri that question since she's it as an AI. Siri. How are you feeling? I'm happy to be here. So she gave the response, I'm happy to be here. Meaning she was able to tell me something. Um, did that sound fake? Yes. Did, would that give it away to you? I don't know. You know, maybe if you were talking to a bunch of these things all day long, you wouldn't be able to tell. But the point is that AIs can get pretty sophisticated to the point where they know how to answer a question like that. So you're probably thinking now, has anything attempted to pass it? Has anything passed a Turing test? And that is where we're moving to discuss in just a moment. I mentioned that Turing thought that a machine would be able to pass a test in the year 2000. And I wanted to just bring your attention to, this is the kind of computer that he was aware of. This is a part of Colossus. So it was pretty, um, prophetic of him in a way to realize how far it would get because at the time nobody had a phone they could pick up and ask a question to like that now when we, by the time we get to the 60s we see the development of programs that are called chatbots some of you may have dealt with them before okay if you've ever had to do customer service at amazon you've talked to a chatbot because that's what they that's what they make you talk to eliza was one of the very first uh, she was, she, it was developed oh, at <laughs> MIT. And what I just did there is a good example. We anthropomorphize these things. And the creator of Eliza, he was kind of disturbed because people kept talking to it. It was like a fake psychiatrist is what it was supposed to be. And employees just kept talking to it. And he was amazed at the things that people would tell to this thing, even though they knew it wasn't, wasn't real. Um, there are chatbots that are more sophisticated now, like Cleverbot, who you can talk to on internet browsers. I don't recommend it because they just collect every piece of data you put into it, but you can ask it questions. So, so, so when you're on an internet site, like you, like let's say you want to buy a car or look at a car, or uh, and you have like this thing will pop up and will say, "Can I answer some questions for you?" That that's not a. There's no connection with humanity there that is purely almost never AI. yeah 
uh, thing. Okay. Almost always a chat bot. Right. And you can tell because you can try to do like what we were just doing. You can ask it Turing test like questions and see how, how well it does. <laughs> yeah, see how, it's, how it does. It's probably not going to do too well. Um, yeah, the, and that is a good example of what Elon Musk was talking about, the concern that we're going to get replaced. They're already replacing people in some respects. So has anything actually passed the Turing test? Um, well, that question is loaded because it depends who gives the test. It depends what the, uh, the rules are for the test. So the Royal Society in Britain did one in 2014 where a chatbot supposedly passed the test. He fooled 33% of the judges into thinking that he was a Ukrainian 13 year old. And that's that image you have there. Okay, but the problem was every time he said something strange or confusing, <clears throat> the judges attributed that to a language barrier instead of the fact that he was a chatbot. So it was basically cheating. Uh, but there are more sophisticated ones and you'll hear stories sometimes in tech journals um, about a chatbot or an AI that has passed a Turing test. But the next thing I wanna talk about is the fact that it doesn't matter if something passes a Turing test. It would not prove that it could think. It would not prove that it was actually thinking like a person. And I will move to a thought experiment that shows that. So this is called or known as the Chinese room argument. It comes from a famous philosopher of language named John Cyril. And John Cyril objected to the Turing test. He objected to the idea that computers are anything like a human, human thinking. So I'll describe the example for you a little bit, but in some ways it's a little self-explanatory when you look at it. So inside this room, you have a person sitting at a book. He does not speak Chinese, but this book gives him complex instructions on how to uh, respond to statements in Chinese, such as a series of instructions. Outside the door, you have a woman who is a Chinese speaker, and she is writing statements in Chinese, and she is passing them back through the door. The man inside the room picks up the statement and then he'll look in the book and the book will tell him how to respond to it, how to reply to it. He will then write a reply and slip it back out through the door. She picks it up, reads it and assumes, oh, the, the person in there speaks Chinese. But in fact, he does not. He does not understand it at all. And this thought experiment is meant to show that, under, that shows understanding syntax is not enough to guarantee that one is actually thinking. So a machine or an artificial intelligence is receiving inputs and then it runs a program on those inputs and it gives you an output. That doesn't mean that it's thinking. It doesn't mean that Siri actually is feeling any type of way when it gives you that response. To give you an example from my own experience that might help make this a little more clear, I was once asked to uh, make a birthday cake for a Korean person, and I do not speak Korean. I was given a um, piece of paper that had happy birthday in Korean written, so I copied it and wrote it onto the cake. I had no idea what it said. I trusted the person who told me what it said, but I didn't speak Korean. 
And it might've looked like I did based on that work. So what are some of the implications of this? Well, for John Cyril, he translates the analogy like this. The man in the room is like the CPU in, in the computer. The instructions in the book are the computer's program. Neither the man nor the computer actually understand or know what they are saying. So his point from this is, it doesn't matter if an AI passes the Turing test. It doesn't mean it knows anything. It just means it can give the right output to the right input, okay? So it's kind of a reassuring thought experiment. It's basically saying if a thing is programmed, it's limited by that programming. And that really kind of limits AI and the, the application of it. Can I just interrupt? It's um, interesting you said that because it seems like in science fiction, the AI entity always seems to go beyond and above its program. It like rebels, you know? I guess it sort of lives on its own, but then like cause and effect, which, you know, as a philosopher, you know, you're having something greater than, the effect is greater than the cause. All of a sudden this computer AI thing is going beyond what was programmed into it. And what caused it? You know, you can't trace a cause. So it seems exactly. to be violating a core principle of philosophy. Yes, exactly. How can it produce more than was input into yeah. it? Um, I will talk a little bit about a potential for that. Um, but in my opinion, and it would be, yeah, it would be great to go on the record saying that AI can't do that. And then next week we have some super villain AI take over the country if it hasn't already. Um, but I do think it's limited. Using Biden as a puppet? <laughs> well, we, we want to, <laughs> it's still intelligent, you know, I mean, it's artificial, but <laughs> might leave it at that. But uh, yeah, it, there's that fear that, so if I step back to um, this diagram, that the fear would be then if we carried this analogy further that the man in the room, the CPU gets up and walks out of the room and starts to do you know, what it feels like, that it can go beyond this programming. Mm -hmm. Can anything do that? In my opinion, no, not the way it currently is, but is it possible? I would say that it's possible uh, just because we don't actually fully understand <clears throat> how all of AI learning happens, especially the more modern AI learning. And some of these chatbots I mentioned, like Cleverbot, Microsoft created a chatbot called Microsoft Tay, and it was a Twitter account. And it was supposed to imitate a teenage girl Twitter account. So firstly, you might think, why would you do that? We'll just bracket that. I don't know why they, what they were planning. I think they were trying to promote things. And in a span of 12 hours, users on Twitter were able to corrupt this chatbot to become a Nazi, like say pro-Nazi things and send Nazi messages to people. And did she go beyond her programming? 
did she become a Nazi of her own accord or more likely was it just a manipulation of the input output system? Very likely, but it's, it's still concerning. So I mentioned that, that difference between syntax and semantics, and I'll point out a couple more things about that. <clears throat> the argument is based on that distinction. So syntax deals with the manipulation of symbols, like the man was doing with the Chinese symbols that he didn't understand, but he knew how to put them together based on the, the program that he had. Mm-hmm. Semantics deals with interpreting symbols as attaching meaning to them. So when I called Siri a moment ago and I asked how Siri was feeling, Siri said she was happy to be here or whatever. Siri is not understanding anything that she's saying. Siri is just giving an output based on the input. She was programmed to be able to react to that kind of question. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the upshot of this is it wouldn't matter so much if something does pass a Turing test that doesn't mean that it's achieved human intelligence. Kind of funny thing is a human could fail a Turing test too, which is another uh, example. I don't know. For me, one, one dead giveaway is if someone, you know, some phones will automatically send a robotic text message if a person is driving and you send them a text, it'll send back a text saying, I'm driving right now, I can't talk to you. Hopefully the person didn't write it, but it's usually really obvious that they didn't because it's all spelled correctly, has punctuation Mm -hmm. and that sort of, there's usually giveaways like that as well. So one objection, I don't know if any of you have thought about an objection to this, but in philosophy, you have to consider the objections. So there's a number of objections to John Steele's argument. And one that I just wanted to present to you is the robot reply. And the robot reply essentially says the following. It suggests that we put a digital computer in a robot body with sensors such as video cameras, et cetera, such as wheels to move around with and arms with which to manipulate things in the world. Such a robot, a computer with a body could do what a child does learn by seeing and doing. The robot reply holds that such a digital computer and a robot body freed from the room, so to speak, that Chinese room could attach meanings to symbols and actually understand natural language. So this objection is more or less saying that John Cyril wasn't imaginative enough. And sure, the computer sitting on my desk right now is limited in its intelligence. But if it could get up and move around and experience things, then it would learn. Well, not really. And here's why. John Cyril replied to this and he said, a robot computer is just a stationary computer that moves around. It's, it's still what they call a Turing machine. It's still a program based on inputs and outputs. It might be able to roll around. Maybe some of you may even have robot there's a lot of robot toys, some that you can, you know, make them bring you drinks or something. But that doesn't mean it can experience and gain knowledge like a person, and it won't. That being said, um, there are AIs designed to be able to have something like human perception. 
And father mentioned in the opening, driverless cars. Driverless cars are a good example of that. <clears throat> so in order for a car to have an AI driver, it has to be able to sense the environment in some capacity. It has to be able to quote unquote see. But again, it's still just the same thing. It's receiving an input, creating an output. And sometimes it doesn't go well. So I read a story um, about a man, this has been a while now, it's been about three years ago, was in a prototype driverless car and he was watching a movie because he didn't need to be driving. The AI was driving and he was watching Harry Potter, which that was probably the big mistake that he made. Uh, but the AI was confused. It thought it saw open road, but what it actually saw was the side of a semi and it drove right into it. So we're not there yet, but when Elon Musk talks about the advancement of AI, he's really talking about these kind of things, these driverless cars that have something like human perception and are trying to imitate human perception. <clears throat> and one of the thoughts is, well, if they can imitate human perception, could it gain knowledge that way, like of an environment or something? And at this point, it still looks like it's just that same input-output situation. So in light of that, I do kind of want to move over to talk about what's going on right now and maybe some more sophisticated versions of AI. So, so far I've been making it seem like uh, programs can only do one thing, like that you give it the input, it gives you the output. And father raised that good question, can they ever uh, surpass that? Can they overcome, overcome their programming? Well, with deep learning and artificial neural networks, that seems more plausible. So an artificial neural network is a piece of compu a computing system designed to simulate the way the human brain analyzes and processes information. Good example of this for you is Facebook facial recognition AI. Now, I know about the philosophy. I don't know about the computer science of how they do this. I do know that you can download programs to make your own artificial neural networks if you wanted, if you wanted to do something like that. But this is what it looks like. This is a representation anyway. So that image on your left is an image of a circle, 28 by 28 pixels. This pyramid shape is the artificial neural network. And each layer of this analyzes the image. And this neural network is supposed to, to identify shapes. So on the output layer, you'll see a square, a circle, and a triangle. Now, a baby, well, a very small child could instantly recognize this shape, but you have to train these neural networks over and over and over again. And you'll notice that this neural network sample I have here made a mistake. It picked square when it's really a circle. And then when it picks square, it gets an error ratio attached to it. And then you feed the neural network millions of images of shapes until it's quote unquote trained. And then it can start making the right choice. <laughs> now with that facial recognition software, that's what it's doing in a much more sophisticated way. So deep face is one that Facebook uses and they just feed it millions of images of human faces in order to identify them. So an example is this. 
and these aren't actually real people, so don't worry about that. Um, so what it'll do is someone will upload a picture and you may have noticed this on Facebook yourself and it'll ask you, hey, is it this person? I always think I recognize this person. That's an AI. That's an AI talking to you when that happens. Now you can disable that if you want to. And I just read that at the last week of February, Facebook had to settle a massive lawsuit associated with DeepFace. DeepFace is supposedly 97% accurate. And in 2015, there was a class action lawsuit filed. Um, and just this past month, there was a $650 million settlement for this class action because of violations of privacy by this AI. Um, so it shows you how, how rapidly developing this kind of situation is. Now, in this case, Facebook got in trouble because they were taking your pictures without your consent and putting them into their neural network. But sometimes people put them into the AIs of their own accord. And that would be these photo editing softwares like FaceApp. People put images in there like it'll, it can make you look younger or it can make you look older, whatever you want. And the way that works is the same exact way. It's using facial recognition software. They'll, like the neural network will study millions of images and then it'll be able to produce a result. So this shows you that they're becoming more sophisticated. If we bounce back to that image, they're more sophisticated. The inputs can be more varied and the outputs can be more varied. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's still programming. It's still being programmed. Mm -hmm. So on that note, I wanted to move over to these ethical concerns, which I think have been kind of obvious as we've been moving through or they, they've been emerging as we've gone through. So you can have ethical concerns about AI on that weak AI level as a tool. Violations of privacy, like we just saw with facial recognition, not only of your privacy just on using Facebook, but they now use facial recognition to locate you in an airport. Um, after that incident on Capitol Hill on January 6th, people who happened to be on Capitol Hill doing nothing, were identified by facial recognition software at various airports. So privacy concerns are huge with AI right now. Eliminating thousands or millions of jobs. <laughs> we already mentioned about how chatbots are replacing um, IT workers or helplines, but it's even happening in the medical field and other places where an AI may surpass a human, a human worker. <clears throat> putting us at risk through dependence, I think is a big concern. So let's say that we all have self-driving cars because it reduces the number of accidents, or at least we think that it does. But what if it doesn't? What if it's a big risk? What if we become so dependent on AI, we can't even use a basic program without an AI assist? An example I could give you is something like Photoshop. People depend on AI assist in that kind of software all the time. So these are all big concerns. I'd say right now, <clears throat> your most pressing concern is privacy. And that's why we're seeing lawsuits. But we joked at the beginning about how YouTube could run facial recognition algorithms on us and whatnot. Well, it definitely can. It, it certainly can. Now, 
more nefarious. This is the strong AI concerns, the more nefarious concerns. And it's weird to say the word nefarious with that, that robot's face there, but <laughs> it, it actually is. Some researchers promoting that strong AI view, like back in the 50s, Alan Turing, um, they intend to develop AI to a point where it is indistinguishable from a human mind like Turing predicted. Now, this robot over here, Pepper, is among 15,000 who are used in Japanese and European banks to interact with customers and replace workers, of course. This type of AI research um, could be viewed as a modern day alchemy. Like a, a really dark attempt to usur usurp creation and make your own being. Um, that And in sci-fi that comes up, but it, it is a real concern. Um, are there researchers out there who are just trying to make um, an artificial intelligence for the purpose of saying they created another intelligence? That would be a, a very concerning application for AI. So let me check our time. Yeah, at this point, um, if you have any questions or wanted to have elaboration on any points or dive into any ethical issues, that would be great. Um, I'd, I'd like to actually, and um, I know there are uh, was a couple of questions from our good people too, but if I could just ask a couple. Sure. Um, so we had mentioned before we began the broadcast, um, I, in preparation because I was reading about a Protestant sort of mainline Protestant pastor who was speaking about the notion of AI and how they could bring about in the future some electronic person that could pass for a human. And as a result, the pastor was, was wondering whether or not they could participate in the redemption won by Christ on the cross. And somehow, were they now part of the larger sort of, sort of extent of this universal sort of salvific work of Christ? And of course, that's obviously a ridiculous thought. Uh, there's no soul to be saved no. in these things. But can you baptize this in a sense that the church has baptized other things in the past, which there was some good in them, and therefore whatever was good in the thing, the church took, baptized, and sort of brought into the treasury of the church. So is AI you know, something that can be very, very helpful to, to man, and we should not be afraid of it. Yeah, that is a really good question. And I think, um, in one respect, I think the story about St. Albert, whether it's apocryphal or not, is helpful in that regard. I think that weak AI notion of AI as a tool that we can use to help us do things, I think we should be cautious with it. Uh, Steve Wozniak, one of the founders of Apple and creator of personal computing, said you should never trust a computer you can't throw out a window. And that's kind of that's kind of a good attitude. You know, we have to be careful with it. But I think the possibilities are great with AI as a tool. Great example was how the code breakers in Bletchley Park basically used it to help crack code. Um, so I think, yes, we could use it in a lot of good ways. Um, there are definitely positive uses for it. I don't think it's in, it, it's in itself evil. I do think when we get into that 
um, <clears throat> realm of strong AI, where there are individuals trying to create androids that are indistinguishable from humans, that that, that probably has a nefarious intent just mm -hmm. by the nature of it. Right. I wonder too, so this weak AI, which you mentioned, which obviously can be quite helpful in solving, you know, codes, right? As we were mentioning, but this is the danger that, that I guess Musk initially thought about. And maybe that Yang, remember, the, is that, was that, was that the name of the presidential candidate for the Democrats? Yes. Was it Andrew Yang? Yes. He was talking about giving guaranteed money like 2000 bucks a month for the average, you know, worker, because they're seeing that this, the danger of literally where are any jobs left in the retail sector slash factory sector, the, the blue collar is, you know, is man going to be Mr. Leisurely man and, you know, an opiate addict <laughs> while, you know, is some machine is going to you know cook his eggs yeah that that's a concern um and there's actually a play actually the reason we use the word robot is because of a russian play called r-u-r -R. and in the play this is about the turn of the century when this play came out and in the play all serfs were replaced with robots. So serfs no longer had to work the land. They didn't need peasants. Um, basically everybody was living high on the hog. And naturally, of course, the robots have a revolution and destroy all of that. Um, I don't perceive that happening, but it could happen that our culture becomes a situation where robot slaves like Pepper here do all the jobs. And there's a very small amount of people who are living off of that as possible. I do think if something like that started to emerge, you'd probably see some Luddite movements like you had when the industrial revolution began, you'd have people smashing the machinery and whatnot mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because they don't want, not only do they not want their jobs to be taken, they don't want society to become like a hybrid Android society. And I think what Elon Musk was talking about, what's known as body botting, which means you would just edit your biological self to have some kind of cybernetic augmentation. And I believe he called it Neuralink. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what he called it, yeah. Yeah, so his thinking, his fear might be that an AI would just be able to eclipse us in terms of coding and thinking and everything else. So you have to um, do performance enhancement to keep up with that, like modify your brain. And that raises ethical questions too. Uh I, I was thinking, as you, as you were saying that, Iris, uh, I was thinking that, uh, well, I mean, we're all talking about blue collar jobs in a sense, uh, but what about a, a, a cyborg or robotic CEO? I mean, why do we need Musk? Why do we need Steve Jobs or, you know, uh, all these individuals? Because, you know, <laughs> yeah, can take anybody's place, it seems. Yes, it, depending, well, what Musk was talking about, he was thinking of those neural networks I showed you in that deep learning I talked about exceeding its programming. And if that happened, you could imagine, you know, some Android or AI intelligence that is beyond like encoding. Like, why couldn't you have it do the coding or something along those lines? So certainly it could, it could take more jobs than just blue collar jobs, depending on mm -hmm. how sophisticated it gets. Um, IBM has a sophisticated AI called Watson 
And right now they're training it to do medical diagnosing. And if it works, then it could possibly even replace some doctors, which would be really surprising. I don't know that anyone would be comfortable with that or trusted, but definitely. I, mean, I think the only time that there'll be a rebellion is if they replace journalists. If journalists begin losing their jobs, because why not just put a robot to cover the, uh, the story or to write an editorial? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's, they have AIs that write um, film scripts now in that exact same way that I showed you. They feed it thousands of scripts and then they ask for an output. And it's not great, but it's good enough for most Hollywood purposes at this point. Um, so, B yeah. B level, right? <laughs> you know, it, it could absolutely replace more jobs than just what we would consider to be blue collar jobs. And I was taking a look at some of the Q&A. Um, yes. So uh, Christina brought up a good question about intricate algorithms currently being generated from the sweeping data mining of the technocrats dovetails with strong AI concerns with respect to media and propagandizing. That's absolutely true. So a great example of how that works is how Facebook culls our data. And you think uh, it's creepy that they're using that to sell me clothes and whatnot, but that's not the only thing they're doing with it. So they they call that biometrics where they record information about you, your likes, your dislikes, your political activity. And they use that to target you, to target you directly. So that's one, that's like the most effective propaganda ever. They don't, they don't even have to guess. They just use that to create targeted propaganda. Um, yeah. So data mining, targeted propaganda, major concerns. Um, I think I saw one in the chat as well. Oh yes, from Will Schrader. What about the reality that machines don't have souls and therefore are not alive and consequently cannot have the powers of intellect or free will? Yes, that's absolutely true. They don't have those things. So one of the problems is people like Alan Turing and computer science researchers have a materialist view of the universe. So they, they always kind of gloss over the existence of the soul. So they try to say things like, well, if a computer or an artificial intelligence can display those behaviors that seem human-like, well, we can just assume they're like humans, but you're right. It does not have will. It does not have a free will. It does not have rationality, even though in some cases it could imitate it. Maybe more so than even an animal would be good at imitating it. And what about that question about, and you talk about a little alchemist sort, oh, yeah. of sort of connection or the occult in general. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I can speak a bit more to that. With respect to the story about St. Albert, one of the reasons that story came into existence, and I trace this back about as far back as I could get with real legitimate sources was 1600s. There were alchemists in the Middle Ages who did all manner of bizarre things. And you may know a little about alchemy, but it was like a mixture of science and occult. Mm -hmm. um, and they would try to do things. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the concept of a golem that comes from Kabbalah and Jewish Kabbalah practices where it could create this like metallic or stone man that they bring to life. So there was absolutely an idea in alchemy that you could create an artificial human. And one of the alchemist theories was that you could create an artificial human that could answer any question posed to it. 
So more or less an oracle. And yes, so uh, Ken, you're feeling that that has some connection to the occult, I think is on point. I do think there is a, a dark side to this because mm-hmm. of that. There is one sense in which this is just a tool like anything else, like the keyboards we type on and so forth. But there is also that darker side to this. It seems like if you were to deny the soul, which I I assume that many of these individuals do, they have to spiritualize the material then. So all of a sudden, uh, these occult forces sort of come into play where uh, you sort of give life to something which is not informed with the soul, but somehow you give it life. Why is it to, as sort of like a final sort of thought, why do the machines, maybe it's because of that Russian um, story you spoke about, the machines always turn against their maker. Is there some reflection of man's rebellion against his creator? Is there something there where every time a machine, they rise up, and they take over and they killed their own program. Um, yes. Let me I'll go ahead and stop that. Um, yeah, that's a great point. It in those type of stories, it's always the robots rising up and, and destroying humanity, or an AI takes over the whole world via a computer network or whatever it might be. And Isaac Asimov even thought that was bad. He said, I'm gonna write nice robots because all the other ones are evil. But I think what you raised there is, I do think that's an interesting point. I think it might be, might be partly that we think there's something corrupted in creating a homunculus, like a android or a, a fake human or that rebellious angle that we just expect that to happen because we do that. You know, that's something that we've done, uh, certainly. And Ed did um, ask a, a good question. Um, and will commented on it about how AI will create jobs. And that is true. It will create jobs. People having to, like I said about these neural networks, you need people to program those and maintain those, certainly. I think there's just a fear that it will probably, it'll, it'll drastically change the kind of jobs we have. I've heard people compare it to the industrial revolution. So like a sudden shift in the types of jobs we take, and that might be really hard for a, a lot of people. But yeah, I am not, I don't think AI will anytime soon be able to just take care of itself. Um, Elon Musk said about five years, maybe he knows something that I don't. There's a really good chance that he does since he works with uh, self-driving cars and what have you. But to me, I'm always struck by the limitations of programming, that they're just so limited by that. So would you want to like, maybe say any sort of concluding thoughts, uh, maybe maybe to be prophetic, or what do you think will happen five years from now, as Musk says, or a decade, or, you know, by 2050? What, 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 what do you think the future has in store for AI? That's a, that's a great question. And I think we were just talking about sci-fi. I think we tend to think about when are we going to have robots that look like people and talk like people? I think it's going to be more aimed at these kind of facial recognition, data mining, data collection softwares, and that data itself is going to be a tremendous commodity. China is already selling it. You know, um, they harvest and sell such a massive amount of biometric data that I think that might be one of the ways in which we see things change. 
more of a focus on these type of softwares. I also think we're going to see a lot more lawsuits about this. We just saw the one a couple of weeks ago that ended in $650 million um, settlement. So that I think more of that will happen. Probably the biggest advancement that I do see coming is that self-driving car because it's been about 10 years now where people think that can happen. If, if something big changes in the next five years, it would be something like that. And that would really change a lot of things, I think. And one other thing to look out for is something, I confess, I don't know much about this because I, I don't do computer science, but there is a concept of quantum computing. Um, a kind of computing that goes way beyond the type of programming that we're used to that could somehow go past the need for that basic input output on off one zero situation. And then it, that would open up the options for artificial intelligence and make it massively more dynamic. But I'm not sure that that's gonna happen, but that's one thing to look out for as well, quantum computing. But in terms of any concluding remarks from me, uh, maybe I'll be making a bad bet, but I always bet against the artificial intelligence because it is a program. And because if you've ever had to rely on them for anything, like talk to Siri for directions or anything, you're almost always disappointed. And they, they just aren't up to the, I don't think they're up to a point where they can replace any type of human intelligence at this point. But I do think that we are much more reliant on them than we realize and we interact with them on an almost constant basis without even realizing it. I, I just wanted to ask one more if it's okay, Iris. Sure. Um, the notion of human dignity in general, if, 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 it, if it comes to the fact that men are producing less with their own hands, and being creative with their own uh, sort of gifts and talents and perfecting themselves by actualizing some of their talents and bringing them to produce. First of all, will men become ever more uh, like almost an atrophy in terms of their mental capacity where why even look, why even research to just, just push an AI button and someone will tell you what to do. And then why do you need to reproduce in a family to have human beings to sort of till the earth and to to sort of you know work because you have serfs you have robotic serfs like you mentioned before the the, the Russian story yeah mm -hmm. that are men going to be sort of like this sort of virtual sort of individuals sitting behind a screen uh, not engaging with other people yes and they're just living in a sort of an AI world where they can't distinguish their fellow man from a machine and they don't care. Yeah. And these questions did arise and during the industrial revolution also uh, questions about the dignity of work. And if it was, if we were losing some of that um, and something maybe we could talk about another time is that question of virtual reality. So that's already happening in some countries and Japan, there's been a lot of articles about Japan being, particularly bad on this front, but there's some people who live their existence entirely online. There are um, program, these programs have existed for a while where people just virtually interact with uh, what they call avatars. And let's suppose that most of the world is operated by robotic AIs. You know, they do all the jobs, they do the, all the driving, they do every, almost every conceivable job. 
would people spend more time in those virtual realities? Very possible. Mm -hmm. I think, and I think it's already happening in some countries, to be honest. Right. Very good. I appreciate this, Iris. You did quite well. And uh, well, I think thank you for you having put me. Put together a, a wonderful presentation for us at the thank parish. You. And we appreciate you tuning in as well and for asking those good questions, everybody. And uh, uh, next week, I will not be able to do the, uh, the Zoom uh, uh, class because I'll be off in Wingland. Um, but um, uh, we'll be back at it, uh, of course, during, I think, Wednesday of Holy Week. So until then, uh, Thank you for joining us, and let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, amen. Thank you, Irish. Thank Bye -bye. you very much. Thank you.